Chapter Thirteen of the Titan by Theodore Dreiser. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The die is cast. The significance of this visit was not long in manifesting itself. At the top, in larger affairs, life goes off into almost inexplicable tangles of personalities. Mr. McKenty, now that the matter had been called to his attention, was interested to learn about this gas situation from all sides, whether it might not be more profitable to deal with the Schreihart end of the argument, and so on. But his eventual conclusion was that Cowperwood's plan, as he had outlined it, was the most feasible for political purposes, largely because the Schreihart faction, not being in a position where they needed to ask the city council for anything at present, were so obtuse as to forget to make overtures of any kind to the buccaneering forces at the city hall. When Cowperwood next came to McKenty's house, the latter was in a receptive frame of mind. Well, he said, after a few genial preliminary remarks, I've been learning what's going on. Your proposition is fair enough. Organize your company and arrange your plan conditionally. Then introduce your ordinance and we'll see what can be done. They went into a long, intimate discussion as to how the forthcoming stock should be divided, how it was to be held in escrow by a favorite bank of Mr. McKenty's until the terms of the agreement under the eventual affiliation with the old companies or the new union company should be fulfilled, and details of that sort. It was rather a complicated arrangement, not as satisfactory to Cowperwood as it might have been but satisfactory in that it permitted him to win. It required the undivided services of General Van Sickle, Henry de Soto Sippens, Kent Barrows, McKibben, and Alderman Dowling for some little time. But finally, all was in readiness for the coup. On a certain Monday night, therefore, following the Thursday, on which, according to the rules of the City Council, an ordinance of this character would have to be introduced, the plan, after being publicly broached, but this, very little while, was quickly considered by the city council and passed. There had been really no time for public discussion. This was just the thing, of course, that Cowperwood and McKenty were trying to avoid. On the day following the particular Thursday, on which the ordinance had been broached in council, as certain to be brought up for passage, Schiehart, through his lawyers and the officers of the old individual gas companies, had run to the newspapers and denounced the whole thing as plain robbery. But what were they to do? There was so little time for agitation. True, the newspapers, obedient to this larger financial influence, began to talk of fair play to the old companies, and the uselessness of two large rival companies in the field where one would serve as well. Still the public instructed or urged by the McKinty agents to the contrary, were not prepared to believe it. They had not been so well treated by the old companies as to make any outcry on their behalf. Standing outside the city council door on Monday evening, when the bill was finally passed, Mr. Samuel Blackman, president of the Southside Gas Company, a little wispy man with shoe-brush whiskers, declared emphatically, this is a scoundrelly piece of business. If the mayor signs that, he should be impeached. There is not a vote in there tonight 
that has not been purchased, not one. This is a fine element of brigandage to introduce into Chicago. Why, people who have worked years and years to build up a business are not safe. It's true, every word of it, complained Mr. Jordan Jules, president of the Northside Company, a short, stout man with a head like an egg, lying lengthwise, a mere fringe of hair and hard blue eyes. He was with Mr. Hudson Baker, tall and ambling, who was president of the West Chicago Company. All of these had come to protest. It's that scoundrel from Philadelphia. He's the cause of all our troubles. It's high time the respectable business element of Chicago realized just what sort of man they have to deal with in him. He ought to be driven out of here. Look at his Philadelphia record. They sent him to the penitentiary down there, and they ought to do it here. Mr. Baker, very recently the guest of Schyhart's and his henchmen, too, were also properly chagrined. The man's a charlatan, he protested to Blackman. He doesn't play fair. It is plain that he doesn't belong in respectable society. Nevertheless, and in spite of this, the ordinance was passed. It was a bitter lesson for Mr. Norman Schyhart, Mr. Norrie Sims, and all those who had unfortunately become involved. A committee composed of all three of the old companies visited the mayor, but the latter, a tool of McKenty's, giving his future into the hands of the enemy, signed it just the same. Cowperwood had his franchise, and grown as they might, it was now necessary in the language of a later day to step up and see the captain. Only Scharhart felt personally that his score with Cowperwood was not settled. He would meet him on some other ground later. The next time he would try to fight fire with fire, but for the present, shrewd man that he was, he was prepared to compromise. Thereafter, dissembling his chagrin as best he could, he kept on the lookout for Cowperwood at both of the clubs of which he was a member, but Cowperwood had avoided them during this period of excitement, and Mohammed would have to go to the mountain. So one drowsy June afternoon, Mr. Schyhart called at Cowperwood's office. He had on a bright new steel-gray suit and a straw hat. From his pocket, according to the fashion of the time, protruded a neat blue-bordered silk handkerchief, and his feet were immaculate in new, shining Oxford ties. "'I'm sailing for Europe in a few days, Mr. Cowperwood,' he remarked genially, "'and I thought I'd drop around to see if you and I could reach some agreement in regard to this gas situation. The officers of the old companies naturally feel that they do not care to have a rival in the field, and I'm sure that you are not interested in carrying on a useless rate war that won't leave anybody any profit. I recall that you were willing to compromise on a half-and-half -half basis with me before, and I was wondering whether you were still of that mind. "'Sit down, sit down, Mr. Schyhart,' remarked Cowperwood cheerfully, waving the newcomer to a chair. "'I'm pleased to see you again. No, I'm no more anxious for a rate war than you are. As a matter of fact, I hope to avoid it. But as you see, things have changed somewhat since I saw you. The gentlemen who have organized and invested their money in this new city gas company are perfectly willing, rather anxious, in fact, to go on and establish a legitimate business. They feel all the confidence in the world that they can do this, and I agree with them. A compromise might be effected between the old and the new companies, 
but not on the basis which I was willing to settle some time ago. A new company has been organized since then, stock issued and a great deal of money expended. This was not true. That stock will have to figure in any new agreement. I think a general union of all the companies is desirable, but it will have to be on a basis of one, two, three, or four shares, whatever is decided, at par, for all stock involved. Mr. Shyhart pulled a long face. Don't you think that's rather steep? he said solemnly. Not at all, not at all, replied Cowperwood. You know these new expenditures were not undertaken voluntarily. The irony of this did not escape Mr. Shyhart, but he said nothing. I admit all that, but don't you think, since your shares are worth practically nothing at present, that you ought to be satisfied if they were accepted at par? I can't see why, replied Cowperwood. Our future prospects are splendid. There must be an even adjustment here or nothing. What I want to know is how much treasury stock you would expect to have in the safe for the promotion of this new organization after all the old stockholders have been satisfied. Well, as I thought before, from thirty to forty percent of the total issue, replied Shyhart, still hopeful of a profitable adjustment. I should think it could be worked on that basis. And who gets that? Why, the organizer, said Shyhart evasively. Yourself, perhaps, and myself. And how would you divide it? Half and half as before? I should think that would be fair. It isn't enough, returned Cowperwood incisively. Since I talked to you last, I have been compelled to shoulder obligations and make agreements which I did not anticipate then. The best I can do now is to accept three-fourths. Shyhart straightened up determinedly and offensively. This was outrageous, he thought, impossible. The effrontery of it. It can never be done, Mr. Cowperwood, he replied forcefully. You are trying to unload too much worthless stock on the company as it is. The old company's stock is selling right now, as you know, from 150 to 210. Your stock is worth nothing. If you are to be given two or three for one for that, and three-fourths of the remainder in the treasury, I, for one, want nothing to do with the deal. You would be in control of the company, and it will be waterlogged at that. Talk about getting something for nothing. The best I would suggest to the stockholders of the old companies would be half and half. And I may say to you frankly, although you may not believe it, that the old companies will not join in with you in any scheme that gives you control. They are too much incensed. Feeling is running too high. It will mean a long, expensive fight, and they will never compromise. Now, if you have anything really reasonable to offer, I would be glad to hear it. Otherwise, I'm afraid these negotiations are not going to come to anything. Share and share alike and three-fourths of the remainder, repeated Cowperwood grimly. I do not want control. If they want to raise the money and buy me out on that basis, I am willing to sell. I want a decent return for investments I have made, and I am going to have it. I cannot speak for the others behind me, but as long as they deal through me, that is what they will expect. Mr. Shyhart went angrily away. He was exceedingly wroth. This proposition, as Cowperwood now outlined it, was buccaneering at its best. He proposed for himself to withdraw from the old companies if necessary, 
to close out his holdings and let the old companies deal with Cowperwood as best they could. So long as he had anything to do with it, Cowperwood should never gain control of the gas situation. Better to take him at his suggestion, raise the money and buy him out, even at an exorbitant figure. Then the old gas companies could go along and do business in their old-fashioned way without being disturbed. This buccaneer, this upstart, what a shrewd, quick, forceful move he had made. It irritated Mr. Shyhart greatly. The end of all this was a compromise in which Cowperwood accepted one half of the surplus stock of the new general issue and two for one of every share of stock for which his new companies had been organized. At the same time, selling out to the old companies, clearing out completely. It was a most profitable deal, and he was enabled to provide handsomely, not only for Mr. McKenty and Addison, but for all the others connected with him. It was a splendid coup, as McKenty and Addison assured him. Having now done so much, he began to turn his eyes elsewhere for other fields to conquer. But this victory in one direction brought with it corresponding reverses in another. The social future of Cowperwood and Eileen was now in great jeopardy. Shyhart, who was a force socially, having met with defeat at the hands of Cowperwood, was now bitterly opposed to him. Norrie Sims naturally sided with his old associates, but the worst blow came through Mrs. Anson Merrill. Shortly after the housewarming, and when the gas argument and the conspiracy charges were rising to their heights, she had been to New York and had there chanced to encounter an old acquaintance of hers, Mrs. Martin Walker of Philadelphia, one of the circle which Cowperwood, once upon a time, had been vainly ambitious to enter. Mrs. Merrill, aware of the interests the Cowperwoods had aroused in Mrs. Sims and others, welcomed the opportunity to find out something definite. By the way, did you ever chance to hear of Frank Algernon Cowperwood or his wife in Philadelphia, she inquired of Mrs. Walker? Why, my dear Nellie, replied her friend nonplussed, that a woman so smart as Mrs. Merrill should even refer to them. Have those people established themselves in Chicago? His career in Philadelphia was, to say the least, spectacular. He was connected with a city treasurer there, who stole $500,000, and they both went to the penitentiary. That wasn't the worst of it. He became intimate with some young girl, a Miss Butler, the sister of Owen Butler, by the way, who is now such a power down there, and... She merely lifted her eyes. While he was in the penitentiary, her father died, and the family broke up. I even heard it was rumored that the old gentleman killed himself. She was referring to Eileen's father, Edward Malia Butler. When he came out of the penitentiary, Cowperwood disappeared, and I did hear someone say that he had gone west and divorced his wife and married again. His first wife is still living in Philadelphia somewhere with his two children. Mrs. Merrill was properly astonished, but she did not show it. Quite an interesting story, isn't it? She commented distantly thinking how easy it would be to adjust to Cowperwood's situation, and how pleased she was that she had never shown any interest in them. Did you ever see her, his new wife? I think so, but I forgot where. I believe she used to ride and drive a great deal in Philadelphia. Did she have red hair? 
Oh, yes, she was a very striking blonde. I fancy it must be the same person. They have been in the papers recently in Chicago. I wanted to be sure. Mrs. Merrill was meditating some fine comments to be made in the future. I suppose now they're trying to get into Chicago society, Mrs. Walker smiled condescendingly and contemptuously, as much at Chicago society as at the Cowperwoods. It's possible they might attempt something like that in the East and succeed, I'm sure. I don't know, replied Mrs. Merrill, caustically resenting the slur, but attempting and achieving are quite different things in Chicago. The answer was sufficient. It ended the discussion. When next Mrs. Sims was rash enough to mention the Cowperwoods, or rather, the peculiar publicity in connection with him, her future viewpoint was definitely fixed for her. If you take my advice, commented Mrs. Merrill finally, the less you have to do with these friends of yours, the better. I know all about them. You might have seen that from the first. They can never be accepted. Mrs. Merrill did not trouble to explain why, but Mrs. Sims, through her husband, soon learned the whole truth, and she was righteously indignant and even terrified. Who was to blame for this sort of thing, anyhow, she thought? Who had introduced them? The Addisons, of course. But the Addisons were socially unassailable, if not all-powerful, and so the best had to be made of that. But the Cowperwoods could be dropped from the lists of herself and her friends instantly, and that was now done. A sudden slump in their social significance began to manifest itself, though not so swiftly, but what for the time being it was slightly deceptive. The first evidence of change which Eileen observed was when the customary cards and invitations for receptions and the like, which had come to them quite freely of late, began to decline sharply in number, and when the guests to her own Wednesday afternoons, which rather prematurely she had ventured to establish, became a mere negligible handful. At first she could not understand this, not being willing to believe that, following so soon upon her apparent triumph as a hostess in her own home, there could be so marked a decline in her local importance. Of a possible seventy-five or fifty who might have called or left cards within three weeks after the housewarming, only twenty responded. A week later it had declined to ten, and within five weeks, all told, there was scarcely a caller. It is true that a very few of the unimportant, those who had looked to her for influence and the self-protecting, Taylor Lord and Kent McKibben, who were commercially obligated to Cowperwood, were still faithful. But they were really worse than nothing. Eileen was beside herself with disappointment, opposition, chagrin, shame. There are many natures, rhinoceros bitted and iron-souled, who can endure almost any rebuff in the hope of eventual victory, who are almost too thick-skinned to suffer, but hers was not one of these. Already, in spite of the original daring in regard to the opinion of society and the rights of the former Mrs. Cowperwood, she was sensitive on the score of her future and what her past might mean to her. Really, her original actions could be attributed to her youthful passion and the powerful sex magnetism of Cowperwood. Under more fortunate circumstances, she would have married safely enough and without the scandal which followed. As it was now, 
Her social future here needed to end satisfactorily in order to justify herself to herself, and, she thought, to him. "'You may put the sandwiches in the icebox,' she said to Louis, the butler, after one of the earliest of the at-home failures, referring to the undue supply of pink-and-blue ribboned tidbits which, uneaten, honored some fine servois with their presence. "'Send the flowers to the hospital. The servants may drink the claret cup and lemonade. Keep some of the cakes fresh for dinner.' The butler nodded his head. "'Yes, madam,' he said, then by way of pouring oil on what appeared to him to be a troubled situation, he added, "'It's a rough day. I suppose that has something to do with it.' Eileen was aflame in a moment. She was about to exclaim, "'Mind your business,' but changed her mind. "'Yes, I presume so,' was her answer, as she ascended to her room. If a single poor at home was to be commented on by servants, things were coming to a pretty pass. She waited until the next week to see whether this was the weather or a real change in public sentiment. It was worse than the one before. The singers she had engaged had to be dismissed without performing the service for which they had come. Kent McKibben and Taylor Lord, very well aware of the rumors now flying about, called, but in a remote and troubled spirit. Eileen saw that, too. An affair of this kind, with only these two and Mrs. Webster Israels and Mrs. Henry Huddlestone calling, was a sad indication of something wrong. She had to plead illness and excuse herself. The third week, fearing a worse defeat than before, Eileen pretended to be ill. She would see how many cards were left. There were just three. That was the end. She realized that her at-homes were a notable failure. At the same time, Cowperwood was not to be spared his share in the distrust and social opposition, which was now rampant. His first inkling of the true state of affairs came in connection with a dinner, which, on the strength of an old invitation, they unfortunately attended at the time when Eileen was still uncertain. It had originally been arranged by the Sunderland Sleds, who were not so much socially, and who at the time it occurred were as yet unaware of the ugly gossip going about, or at least of society's new attitude toward the Cowperwoods. At this time it was understood by nearly all, the Sims, Candas, Cottons, and Kingslands, that a great mistake had been made, and that the Cowperwoods were by no means admissible. To this particular dinner, a number of people, whom the latter knew, had been invited. Uniformly, all when they learned or recalled that the Cowperwoods were expected, sent eleventh-hour regrets. So sorry. Outside the sleds, there was only one other couple, the Stanislaw Heximus, for whom Cowperwood did not particularly care. It was a dull evening. Eileen complained of a headache, and they went home. Very shortly afterward, at a reception given by their neighbors, the Hatchterets, to which they had long since been invited, there was an evident shyness in regard to them, quite new in its aspect, although the hosts themselves were still friendly enough. Previous to this, when strangers of prominence had been present at an affair of this kind, they were glad to be brought over to the Cowperwoods, 
who were always conspicuous because of Eileen's beauty. On this day, for no reason obvious to Eileen or Cowperwood, although both suspected, introductions were almost uniformly refused. There were a number who knew them and who talked casually, but the general tendency on the part of all was to steer clear of them. Cowperwood sensed the difficulty at once. I think we'd better leave early, he remarked to Eileen after a little while. This isn't very interesting. They returned to their own home, and Cowperwood, to avoid discussion, went downtown. He did not care to say what he thought of this as yet. It was previous to a reception given by the Union League that the first real blow was struck at him personally, and that in a roundabout way. Addison, talking to him at the Lake National Bank one morning, had said quite confidentially and out of a clear sky, "'I want to tell you something, Cowperwood. You know by now something about Chicago society. You also know where I stand in regard to some things you told me about your past life when I first met you. Well, there's a lot of talk going around about you now in regard to all that, and these two clubs to which you and I belong are filled with a lot of two-faced, double-breasted hypocrites who've been stirred up by this talk of conspiracy in the papers. There are four or five stockholders of the old companies who are members, and they are trying to drive you out. They've looked up that story you told me, and they're talking about filing charges with the House committees at both places. Now, nothing can come of it in either case. They've been talking to me. But when this next reception comes along, you'll know what to do. They have to extend you an invitation, but they won't mean it. Cowperwood understood. This whole thing is certain to blow over, in my judgment. It will, if I have anything to do with it. But for the present... He stared at Cowperwood in a friendly way. The latter smiled. I expected something like this, Judah, to tell you the truth, he said easily. I've expected it all along. You needn't worry about me. I know all about this. I've seen which way the wind is blowing, and I know how to trim my sails. Addison reached out and took his hand. But don't resign, whatever you do, he said cautiously. That would be a confession of weakness, and they don't expect you to. I wouldn't want you to. Stand your ground. This whole thing will blow over. They're jealous, I think. I never intended to, replied Cowperwood. There's no legitimate charge against me. I know it will all blow over if I'm given time enough. Nevertheless, he was chagrined to think that he should be subjected to such a conversation as this with anyone. Similarly, in other ways, society so-called was able to enforce its mandates and conclusions. The one thing that Cowperwood most resented when he learned of it much later was a snub direct given to Eileen at the door of the Norrie Simses. She called there only to be told that Mrs. Sims was not at home, although the carriages of others were in the street. A few days afterward, Eileen, much to his regret and astonishment, for he did not then know the cause, actually became ill. If it had not been for Cowperwood's eventual financial triumph over all opposition, the complete routing of the enemy in the struggle for control in the gas situation, the situation would have been hard indeed. As it was, Eileen suffered bitterly. She felt that the slight was principally directed at her and would remain in force. 
in the privacy of their own home, they were compelled eventually to admit, the one to the other, that their house of cards, resplendent and forceful-looking as it was, had fallen to the ground. Personal confidences between people so closely united are really the most trying of all. Human souls are constantly trying to find each other, and rarely succeeding. "'You know,' he finally said to her once, when he came in rather unexpectedly, and found her sick in bed, her eyes wet, and her maid dismissed for the day, I understand what this is all about. To tell you the truth, Eileen, I rather expected it. We have been going too fast, you and I. We have been pushing this matter too hard. Now I don't like to see you taking it this way, dear. The battle isn't lost. Why, I thought you had more courage than this. Let me tell you something which you don't seem to remember. Money will solve all this sometime. I'm winning in this fight right now, and I'll win in others. They are coming to me. My dearie, you oughtn't to despair. You're too young. I never do. You'll win yet. We can adjust this matter right here in Chicago. And when we do, we will pay up a lot of scores at the same time. We're rich, and we're going to be richer. That will settle it. Now put on a good face and look pleased. There are plenty of things to live for in this world besides society. Get up now and dress, and we'll go for a drive and dinner downtown. You have me yet. Isn't that something? Oh, yes, sighed Eileen, heavily, but she sank back again. She put her arms about his neck and cried, as much out of joy over the consolation he offered as over the loss she had endured. It was as much for you as for me, she sighed. I know that, he soothed, but don't worry about it now. You will come out all right. We both will. Come on, get up. Nevertheless, he was sorry to see her yield so weakly. It did not please him. He resolved some day to have a grim adjustment with society on this score. Meanwhile, Eileen was recovering her spirits. She was ashamed of her weakness when she saw how forcefully he faced it all. Oh, Frank, she exclaimed finally, you're always so wonderful. You're such a darling. Never mind, he said cheerfully. If we don't win this game here in Chicago, we will somewhere. He was thinking of the brilliant manner in which he had adjusted his affairs with the old gas companies and Mr. Shyhart, and how thoroughly he would handle some other matters when the time came. End of chapter 13